Hey folks, Kim here. Welcome to the second part of our deep dive into the UN Climate Summit, or COP. If you haven't listened to part one yet, we encourage you to stop and go back to that. You're listening to Climate Decoded, the podcast that deciphers climate change communication. We untangle how different narratives illuminate or obscure pathways to climate justice. I'm your co-host, Greg Davis-Jones. And I'm your other co-host, Isabel Bordish. Welcome to part two of our story on the UN Climate Summit, COP the Conference of the Parties, where countries meet annually to debate and decide the international agenda for addressing climate change. In part one, we introduced the lay of the land at COP, deciphering the sea of acronyms, overviewing history, and placing the core concepts on the table. We left having just explored the role of negotiators at COP. But there is a lot more to COP than just negotiations, and a lot more people there than just negotiators. With contemporary COPs gaining more public attention, the proportion of these groups is only increasing. So today, we will be getting to know them. Scientists, civil society, activists, lobbyists, journalists, the whole shebang. And you'll remember from part one that we explored COP through the lens of the high school experience, reimagining these corridors of global climate politics as the corridors of those tempestuous teenage years. Something we are going to continue in this episode. So keep an ear out for more of our highbrow cinematic references. And last episode, we kept a close eye out for cop-outs, what we saw as fundamental problems within the cop process. So stay tuned for more of those. Well then, the school bell is ringing. It's time for another day at cop. Well, uh, cop, I think, acts on many different levels, actually. and It can be effective at, uh, in, in several of these. Its main purpose is the negotiations amongst the countries, the parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. That's its primary purpose, is to try and drive forward international policy and get agreements on uh, uh, addressing climate change. But, of course, it goes beyond that. We can't just leave it all to governments. Governments clearly play a role in leading uh, the world, but it can't all be left to them and the diplomacy by its nature takes a long time to actually do things but COP can also be a focus for for everyone else. That was Richard Betts, the lead on climate change impacts at the UK Met Office, shedding some light on what happens around the negotiations. So who exactly is the everyone else that Richard is referring to? Well, watching the negotiating parties battling it out in the field are many different groups sat up in the bleachers. The theatre kids, the band geeks, the mathletes, the gamers, the bookish types, the popular kids, the skaters, even the stoners. You have all sorts. These are the observers. Observer organisation is an umbrella name for a whole plethora of groups that come to COP. It includes research institutes, like universities and think tanks. It includes civil society, encompassing advocacy groups, indigenous representatives, grassroots organisations and international NGOs. It includes youth activists. It includes business and industry representatives and trade unions. Today, it even includes celebrity types like Leonardo DiCaprio or national treasure David Attenborough. Bringing the knowledge of these diverse groups to the COP is a key cornerstone of what goes on here. 
Let's begin by talking with the researchers and civil society representatives. Their participation is important for a few key reasons. Yes, and we've broken these down into four things. Transparency, knowledge sharing, inclusivity, and strategizing. Firstly, transparency. Well, a large part of being an observer organization is, as the name suggests, to observe. In essence, to closely follow the details of the negotiations and report back to a watching world. Casting back to our high school, it's like the school board inviting student representatives to join their meetings. They might not hold much direct influence over the meeting, but they represent a larger population governed by the decisions. So it's vital that they are there. Tom Goldtooth, executive director from the Indigenous Environmental Network, sums it up effectively. Well, like in many of the conference of the parties of this UN negotiation meetings, uh, it's very important for Native American indigenous peoples to be here. Uh, we've been always an advocate that uh, if we're not here at the dinner table, you know, we're the menu. Civil society needs to be here. There's been a, such a serious corporate takeover, money talks. And from our communities, whether it's Europe, here in Poland, in, in Sweden, in Australia, people need to know what's going on. This brings up our first cop-out of the episode. It's difficult to actually know what's going on. Whilst observers should theoretically be able to watch any negotiations, there are a number of caveats. For one, there are limited observer passes to the negotiations in the first place. For another, it only takes one country to request that the meeting be, quote, closed, and all observers are forced to leave the room. And then on top of that, there's the informal decision-making. Remember our jocks of the cop, the negotiators? Well, sometimes to break a deadlock, they will declare meetings as informal-informal, a scenario a bit like a team huddle on the side of the pitch, where discussions can take place informally, independent of the usual meeting format and with restricted outsider access. Then, on top of the informal-informals, there are the off-record conversations that aren't even announced. Imagine our high school jocks chatting in the changing rooms or in the pitch-side tunnel, out of sight. It's no surprise that this happens. Negotiators have been working on these issues for years. They're on first-name terms, they have each other's direct lines. If you're lucky as an observer, you'll have a negotiator contact who can slip you tidbits from these meetings. But largely, for those in the stands, it's anyone's guess as to what is going on behind the closed doors of COP. Of course, closed and informal meetings could be argued as necessary to reach agreement on difficult points. Some decision makers aren't going to voice their thoughts in front of a camera and audience. But nonetheless, Closing meetings does raise a question mark for transparency and highlight that observation is only really possible to a point. Knowledge sharing is another benefit stemming from the participation of researchers and civil society members at COP. The COP brings thousands of specialists in different fields together. It's like a massive science fair to share and promote the latest climate research. Imagine the most passionate high school science nerds across the world setting up a global annual science fair and we mean that respectfully. We're a nerdy bunch at Climate Decoded. Different researchers congregate with different aims. For example, technical science advisors formally convene at COP to provide the negotiating parties with relevant scientific and technical information and hence inform the negotiation texts. 
Researchers also attend COP to join thousands of panel events, workshops, and exhibitions taking place. These events allow experts in different climate fields to disseminate their research, release papers, and share experiences. Researchers come from a multitude of different backgrounds, from glaciology to climate litigation, from sociology to carbon mitigation. The events they attend are equally diverse. There are really too many to count spread across the massive venue. You have to be very selective with what you try to cram in to your daily COP schedule. Critical nature-based solution to help us both mitigate and adapt to climate change. In the face of historic threats, we need to take historic action. It's time to protect our coastal wetlands. Thank you, everyone. Um, and a big thank you to Rosanna and Ambassador Jumeau for, for their inspiring opening remarks. Um, I'm Lisa Schindler-Murray with the Nature Conservancy on our international climate policy team. And I have the pleasure of, of moderating our panel discussion today. Typically, in panel events, both researchers and civil society convene to advocate and apply political pressure for stronger climate targets and policies. And sometimes this advocacy cuts through the noise, with civil society coming together in a real way to influence the narrative of a COP. Remember Jamie Henn from Part 1, the director of Fossil Free Media? Well, he's back with a good example of how this played out with the Paris Agreement's 1.5 degree target. And that begins to frame what matters. I think another great example of that is 1.5. You know, when I've been in this process long enough to remember when that was a real fight, um, when the target was two degrees. We've been very involved over the years of working with our allies across the Pacific and vulnerable countries who really led that 1.5 to survive fight of trying to put that target. And that was a target that within this process used to be completely dismissed. And it started on banners and at side events and at press conferences and at youth teach-ins and sit-ins. And then in Paris, there was enough political pressure and leverage to actually get it into the agreement for the first time. That triggered the IPCC report on 1.5 degrees that I would argue opened up a huge new era of public awareness on this issue. So again, you can trace that IPCC report and the discussion about 1.5 now back to side events and small actions and discussions here at COP. And so while these things feel sort of esoteric or it feels like, uh, what does it really matter if you call it natural gas or fossil gas or whatever, um, it, it begins to have an effect. And down the road, it can really be transformational in terms of policy. Our next COP issue is to entangle inclusivity, and this brings up another cop-out. Many civil society representatives attend COP in order to counter the inclusivity issues that overshadow the process. In our COP high school, there are far too many cliques who aren't allowed to sit at the popular kids' table, and so civil society groups strive to correct these rules and this divide. Many observer organisations, particularly those championing climate justice and human rights, come to COP to bring marginalised perspectives to the foreground. The fact is, limited resources make attending a costly, faraway COP challenging. But even once there, the language and the bureaucratic style of the negotiations 
result in the exclusion of many voices from the narrative. Namitha Vivek from the NDC partnership explains this frustration. I feel one of the big problems that developing countries face is that the, govern- the, the, the mode of governance is a very top-down approach. Uh, and there's not much sort of public mobilization and not much opportunity for like a bottom-up inclusivity as you see here. Um, having said that, local communities have so much nuanced knowledge about what's going on in terms of um, land degradation, uh, changes. They're the first people to see, not to see changes. The only thing is, they don't have the language that we use to have this conversation here. They don't talk about resilience, they don't talk about adaptation, they don't have keywords that make them seem important enough to be a part of this table. And I feel reaching out and bridging and talking to them, involving local communities in this conversation, that's all we have to do. We don't have to fight for them, you know, we don't have to teach them. They have knowledge, they have, they have the answers even. We just have to listen, we just have to include. It's hard to put into words how excluded some people will feel at the COP, partly because it's not our story to tell. We are approaching this from a position of white, able-bodied privilege. Partly too, because the roots of this run deep. COP is not immune to racism, ableism or sexism. As we touched on last episode, many of the COP internal dynamics reflect colonial power structures and injustices. So, for someone still oppressed by these structures, COP can be a very difficult place to be. As well as this, for those with different worldviews and cosmologies relating to the current COP mandate, essentially negotiating how much we value nature, can be very alienating. Taylor Terena, anthropologist and indigenous activist from the Terena Nation in Brazil, puts this better than we ever could. When I came for the first time in COP, I got like, oh my God, this is what you guys are discussing at text. You know, like, I thought you guys would discuss about the solutions, about the violence and really action, like really practical stuff. But I understand that this, for you guys, is like, for us, in our world, in our cosmology, a paper doesn't show the reality. So the word negotiation for me, have a really have meaning, a bad meaning, because, you know, we are talking about the future, we are talking about our lives, we are talking about our mother, we should not be negotiating anything, you know, like, I bet if I ask those representatives of the governments how much they would pay for their mother, they would not give a price, because there is no price for your mom, you know, so for me, we are really, like, far from reality, of what we really need, but uh, that's why I think it's really important not only like us, for me, but for indigenous peoples to be present here, having their own voice, uh, so we can address this issue from a different perspective. Trying to address the exclusionary dimensions of the COP is crucial if climate justice is to be realized. Observer organizations are at the forefront of this endeavor. To this end, a parallel people summit in the same city and at the same time as COP is typically organized. The aim of the People's Summit is to create solidarity across different struggles and assemble an alternative, more inclusive space from which to mobilize. It's kind of like an alternative school. There's the same basic syllabus, but a more inclusive and non-traditional approach to delivering the curriculum and hosting discussion. 
The People's Summit harnesses a climate justice lens as its modus operandi for addressing climate change. It's an opportunity to bolster a growing grassroots collective and increase the pressure on governments to consider more ambitious climate action. Alongside the summit, many local organizations arrange different spin-off events, film screenings, open lectures, art exhibitions, all striving to include more voices in the climate conversation. Greater COP inclusivity can start with making sure a space is wheelchair accessible or ensuring different language interpretations are available. And fundamentally, it's about equal respect for all present. When it comes to climate justice, a crucial starting point is making sure that people on the front lines of climate change are seen and heard and their experiences are acknowledged and elevated. This is particularly important as many frontline defenders take crucial time away from defending their lands and waters to share their stories. Alternative events like the People Summit seek to reflect these inclusivity principles in the way they are designed and delivered. Our final aspect of why so many observer organisations come to COP is to strategize. Many use the COP as an international meeting point for different grassroots organisations to touch base on the 411 of the year gone by. Organisations with aligning priorities assemble into groups termed constituencies. Ringo, for example, is the researcher constituency and Jungo is the youth constituency. They meet daily at COP to strategize. It's just like having high school band practice before the big show. Reverend Glenn Shebon Cannell, United Methodist pastor and of the Seminole Nation of Oklahoma, expresses the hope that these collaborations and networks bring. I do know there have been a host of grassroots movements that have been here year after year for the past 25 COP gatherings and have cultivated this uh, Indigenous caucus to help give us a platform to communicate with the worldwide community. It's a combination of several feelings. One, of skepticism. Of course, governments are going to say what they have to say for local media, for worldwide media. Um, but it's also exciting to see the grassroots movements that are uh, of uh, climate change work that is taking place across the world. Because at the end of the day, it's the people, it's the masses of communities that, in our local communities that are going to create the change that is necessary. And we actually see those movements taking place today. Taylor Terena reinforcing the importance of COP for creating solidarity and strategizing across different struggles. I also see that this is the place that people like you, me, and those people here can meet and to be aware that we are not alone because the world that we are facing right now, capitalism and etc., make us feel really un uh, alone. Like if we are, uh, like we are without perspective, so places like that, you can see, oh no, I'm not, I'm not alone fighting for our future. I'm not alone believing on that. Lastly, we also wanted to point out that, of course, civil society is not a homogenous group. But nonetheless, the climate emergency is a binding force and encourages many to work hard to bridge silos. Here's Tom Goldtooth again. We need to have better ways of communicating we need to organize ourselves to have constructive dialogue with the private sector, you know. 
with the unions, the workers, with government. But it has to be based upon justice and equity. And those are things that we will continue to advocate for here. These vocal breakouts are common all over COP. It's in these moments you feel the raw emotion and desperation experienced by those disillusioned with dawdling bureaucracy in the face of a rapidly changing climate. It's time for our next high school group. These are the rebels, but rebels with a cause. A group consistently pushing for faster climate action, challenging the power structures controlled by certain COP players and spotlighting climate justice as central to the narrative. The irony of using a high school analogy here is that it is literally now the reality. Youth from the school strike and Fridays for Future movements, spurred on by the efforts of leaders like Greta Thunberg and Vanessa Nakate, have hurled climate activism out of the dimly lit corners and smack bang into the mainstream, bringing vast crowds with them. Actions in activism take many different forms. An art exhibit portraying climate impacts on frontline communities Chants and songs sung out across the venue, staging a sit-in where protesters occupy a place and refuse to leave until their voices are acknowledged. Picture a sort of self-imposed detention. This isn't too much of a stretch of the imagination for Greg, as he spent many a high school afternoon involuntarily detained. And if only the reasons were so noble. But moving on... There's even an art space usually set up near COP which supports actions with materials, imagination and artistic skills. This is a place for the creative kids to shine. And usually the most attended action is a public climate march convened in parallel with the COP. At COP25 in Madrid, we joined half a million people marching and singing through the city centre. Perhaps the most iconic and recurring example of activism at the COP is the Fossil of the Day Award, a satirical award given out by well-known civil society umbrella group, the Climate Action Network. The award is given to countries who are, quote, doing the most to achieve the least. Over the years, this award has built up a lot of attention, and now people clamour and rush from all corners of COP at 6pm to hear the ceremony unfold. It has been both a high and low light for me, collecting the award on behalf of Australia during past COPs. Here's a quick snippet from a Fossil of the Day Award presentation. We had a well-ran dry a little while ago. And, you know, uh, yeah, there's thousands of refugees camped out on the back porch. And, uh, you know, yeah, the roof is covered. It's sort of these glowing, dancing, bright things that are spreading across the roof and making a lot of heat. But our house is not at home. And, and there's also sort of burning koala bears kind of escaping uh, from the top of the roof, but our house is not on fire. So, so let's go play cricket. <laughs> That's right, the third nominee for Fossil of the Day Award here is Australia. Despite the attention this and other actions receive, 
In reality, a lot of activists run into a number of different problems at COP. All actions have to be pre-approved. There are limitations on where and when actions can be held, and critically, rules on who can be named and shamed. If the rules for quote approved demonstrations aren't followed, the threat of suspension or expulsion from the COP venue itself hangs over the heads of action organisers. It reminds me of when a group of high school boys in Wales wore skirts to school to protest the no shorts policy during a heatwave. Like in high school, you can protest, but the school head teacher may suspend you for the day or the week. The power is in their hands. This is another cop out. Here's Australian climate activist Daisy Jeffrey. I think the problem that we see is that when we're given badges here as observers or um, delegates to come here, we're on the line. So we get to demonstrate as civil society, but only to a certain extent. But when it starts to, you know, make it trouble for one government or another, they try to stop us. Uh, I think today they were trying to award uh, fossil of the day to the UNFCCC, and that did, they really didn't like that, so they tried to stop us from hosting this. But lo- we had to actually cut them from the list so that we could hold it, which I think really speaks to a certain level of um, suppression of so civil, civil society's voice. Um, and it's something that I wasn't necessarily surprised to see here at the COP, but it's still really disappointing and also very concerning surrounding free speech. At COP25, we saw this limitation on demonstrations happen in a pretty extreme way. In the final days of the conference, hundreds of people, frustrated by failing talks, convened spontaneously but peacefully in the venue, staging a sit-in and refusing to leave. Security swooped in and things escalated fast. We were forcibly pushed out of the venue into a courtyard, a metal door descended, and just like that, 200-odd civil society representatives were kettled and barred from re-entry for the rest of the day. Physically pushing activists out of the COP was an all-too-real demonstration of who controls the game and who writes the rules at COP. There is a strong feeling of responsibility among different climate activists at COP. I spoke with Harjeet Singh, the head of global political strategy at the Climate Action Network, who we met in part one, about this. I think it's it's really important that all of us become much more aware of climate change and what has caused climate change, what role our governments can play and also what as individuals we can do. Not only changing our habits and behaviour but also how do we put pressure on our, on our own governments. Otherwise our governments are very busy siding with the elite. So unless we wake up, unless we put pressure on our respective governments, this world is not going to change. So we also have a responsibility on our shoulders to keep the planet safe and thriving for future generations. That said, even if you scream as loud as possible, it can feel like the ability to influence decision makers is fairly limited at the COPs. Most of the negotiation rooms are boxed away from action spaces. And as mentioned last episode, marching orders from government leaders are already issued by the time negotiators arrive at COP. Activism is equally needed on the home front. Jamie Hen elaborates. I think that it's useful to be here, but I I worry sometimes, especially for the young people who are coming into it, that they sort of get awed by, wow, there's like all these diplomats and heads of state show up and there are all these fancy pavilions and yada, yada, yada. But like, this is really an illusion. I mean, this is not where the power is. It's back in our capitals. Uh, In many ways, I often feel like be far more useful than all of us coming here just 
skip cop, go sit in at like your parliament, and like that would probably drive more action than r- running around here chasing after stories. Um, so we need both. I mean, we need these venues. We need to use them, um, but we need to do more uh, back at home. But there is another piece of the puzzle that nonetheless makes cops such a big focal point for activists across the globe. A reason why despite the risks and despite the lack of sway over cop decision-making, they don't stop protesting. And that has to do with the presence of our next cop clique, the media. Nations Climate Change Conference. The host country, the United Arab Emirates, is one of the world's top oil producers. Welcome to the opening ceremony of the World Climate Action Summit at COP28. I pray with all my heart that COP28 will be another critical turning point towards genuine transformational action. They're pushing fossil fuels way more than renewables. Is there anything we can do to stop it being a bad cop? The media. The media at COP is something of a cross between a high school reporter and an all-seeing, all-knowing gossip girl armed with microphones, cameras, and a rampaging Twitter feed. Journalists stand on the sidelines, skulking the corridors, covering everything in sight to document in the school yearbook. Journalists from around the world converge at COP with two main agendas. A, bring attention to the fact that COP is even taking place, and B, distill and package the most important messages for publics back home. Every half hour, there is usually at least one press conference running at COP, with different representatives from our high school cliques taking their turn in front of the camera, providing their hot take on the negotiations. Press conferences are typically given by big observer organisations like the Climate Action Network or Friends of the Earth International, but also by politicians and heads of state. Media attendees can range from large networks to literally a high school reporter. But not all networks send journalists and will instead rely on daily press briefings, picking up the stories being broadcast from large international news groups such as Reuters or the BBC. Equally important is sifting through the erupting Twitter sphere and other large social media platforms for the key hashtags and trends gaining traction. I caught up with director Antonio Penarubia from La Sete, a regional public TV network in Spain. Antonio explains the responsibility his small network has in communicating climate change to communities in his region. We think that we must to use the news and the programs of the TV, my TV is a public channel, uh, from telling the people all these news that not always are comfortable to listen and to, to watch in TV. The people, I think, that prefer watch TV for entertainment. And we think that the entertainment is very good, very nice. I love the entertainment, but I think that we have a very big responsibility with the audience for tell all these little stories from the big storms or the little storms and the little problems for all our village. A number of the biggest broadcasting groups are shouldering this responsibility too. 
We spoke with Matt McGrath, the BBC environment correspondent, about engaging the wider public in the COP. I think there's been a big change. There's a greater eagerness, I think, for people. They want to engage more with the issue of climate change. They may not know the ins and outs of it. They may not know what the COP is and how it works, but they're, they're eager. We can see that, we can feel that when we talk to people. And so there's a great hunger, if you like, for, for people to do something. And so I guess we're trying to write stories, uh, or as the BBC, we're trying to promote stories as well that explain the story carefully and in relatively simplest terms and also to reflect the complexities of here. So I think it's kind of reflecting both things, both the overarching sense of the bigger picture, what's going on and what people are doing about it, but also kind of saying, relating it to your life, what can you do? As the COP relies on nations making domestic climate decisions, like emission reductions, financial pledges and adaptation measures, it is vital that people back home hear about what is happening and hold their politicians to account when it comes to election day. This responsibility often lands in the hands of the media. Jamie Hennigan. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's so key, is the way we describe the crisis begins to set the playing field for political action. I think the last year has been a great example of that. I mean, full credit to the Fridays for Future movement and youth and Greta for really pushing this idea of a climate emergency. And now all of a sudden you see in the subway platform here at COP, some corporation in Spain saying, don't call it climate change, call it an emergency. And I'm like, oh my word, we've gone full circle. Like we've already been absorbed into the you know discourse. We've been assimilated. But that stuff is important. There is another group, all together, two present at the COP, in whom, one could say, evil takes a new form. It's questionable whether they should even go to this school. And they certainly should not hold the level of influence they currently have. This group are cheerleaders, but cheering for exactly the thing we do not want. Meet the lobbyists, supporting continued reliance on fossil fuels and advocating for them at the very summit designed to phase them out. Here's Taylor Terena again. As my other uh, Tom from the north says, like, this is not a COP, this is the conference. This is not conference of the parties, this is the conference of the plurals. Mm. Because the ones that they let get inside are the companies that are responsible to the violence, the pollution in our lands. Not only on lands, because everybody are affected by that. It's not only indigenous lands, they destroy everything that they see on the front of them. This is the final COP clique that we wanted to talk about. And... To be honest, much of their presence is a major cop-out. Of course, it's natural that businesses from all marks of industry are interested to attend COP, particularly those connected to energy, transport and agriculture. In fact, for companies in these sectors, it's too much of a business risk or risky business to not worry about climate change. And on top of that, deep transformations in the private sector will be vital to meet climate goals. However, it is deeply troubling when those representing the corporate interests of oil, gas and coal industries make up such a significant presence at the COP. At COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, 636 lobbyists from oil and gas companies were registered in attendance, their number dwarfing the size of nearly all national delegations. Seemingly, the limit to their number does not exist. 
They host events, they lobby the various parties to protect their interests, and thereby preserve the idea of fossil fuels being part of the so-called net-zero carbon future. During COPs, it's not been uncommon in the past for senior government officials to prioritise entertaining fossil fuel industry reps over discussions with climate-vulnerable nations, or to spot large sponsorship deals bankroll the COP. COP25 in Madrid, for example, was wrapped in the green branding of some of Spain's biggest polluters, such as Endesa and Iberdrola. It's like rich kids' parents splashing the cash on building a new performing arts centre and then magically taking up chairmanship of the Board of Governors. In addition, so-called public policy think tanks masking organised climate denial groups can be spotted in and around COP. These groups, such as the Heartland Institute, reject scientific consensus on climate change and aggressively promote pro-fossil fuels rhetoric. At COP24 in Katowice, the Polish government, who are hosting the talks, went one step further into plain sight. They built a shrine to coal. Yep, a shrine. And not just a few piles of coal, but coal made into soap, coal stacked up in cages, and even coal-decorated jewellery. Copious amounts of coal. In a country, and particularly a region, where coal is a way of life, you can see the point that is being made. How do we give up our greatest economic resource and transition away from coal at the rate required? A valid question, but to do it in this antagonistic manner leaves a sooty taste. Ultimately, Poland, like many countries across the belt of Europe, is experiencing record droughts, heavy floods and destructive wildfires. Continuing the burning of coal will only exacerbate such climate extremes. We saw a similar conflict of interest happen in the health industry. The World Health Organization realized that negotiating tobacco controls was going to be pretty nigh impossible as long as tobacco lobbyists were involved. Sounds a little obvious when you say it out loud. So they created a firewall, essentially blocking the access between industry and public health officials to protect the integrity of policymaking. The same thing needs to happen at the COP. Until then, the rules of the game at COP and ultimately how we transition away from carbon-intensive industries are being rigged systematically by people who don't want the game to be played at all, the people who benefit from continued investment in oil and gas. But there are a number of groups that work hard to spotlight this glaring issue of conflict. Yes, we need to point to the problem of creating dangerous false narratives and stop companies trying to make things like natural gas happen. When natural gas is fossil gas, it's not a clean climate solution. We need to point to the way the revolving door between industry and policymakers allows for the perpetuation of unproven at-scale technologies like carbon capture and storage to be built into climate scenarios. We need to point to the fact that key COP documents over the years explicitly do not mention ending reliance and extraction of fossil fuels or even mention the likes of coal, oil and gas. The movie Grease features more oil than the Paris Agreement. Crazy when keeping fossil fuels in the ground is the most sure way to cut emissions. It's pretty solid proof that lobbyists are critically detracting from the integrity of these climate agreements. And something's gotta give. The campaign to kick big polluters out of COP is constantly reminding everyone of this screen of pretense. Jamie Hen.
You know, a lot of what we're trying to do is really paint a picture for people that climate change isn't just some problem that is caused by all of us through individual actions, but they're actually major industry players, the fossil fuel companies, that have known about this crisis for decades, misled the public, and actively tried to block progress, and that finally, it's time that we should start holding them accountable and talk about what's really at the root of this crisis, which is getting off of coal, oil, and gas. Yes. And until we acknowledge this, the moniker for COP, a carefully organized procrastination, will stand true. Daisy Jeffrey, our climate activist from Australia, sums up the frustration. My general impression is that there's so much going on for so little action to be coming out of this. And I think, you know, that really comes out of lobbyists paying to get in to these discussions and uh, they get put ahead they get given a priority, their voice is given a priority over the people who are actually losing their lives to the climate crisis. And uh, people keep saying that COP26 is the year for action. And I think they probably said it at the COP24 that COP25 is the year for action. Now is the time for action. We don't have another year to, you know, excuse my language, fuck around. The end of one COP signals the preparation for the next COP to begin. It's a process that's been on repeat since COP1 in Berlin in 1995. And since that meeting in the Berlin spring of 95, the stakes have risen year on year in lockstep with the general trend of fossil fuel emissions. So here we are, COP28, with the words of the 2021 IPCC report ringing in our ears, code red for humanity. So what's next? As we prepare to host COP28, we approach this role with humility, a deep sense of responsibility and a great sense of urgency. Well, the plan of action for COP28 is ambitious. The plan was set out by the UAE COP presidency in Brussels this summer. It's been summarised by the COP president, Sultan Al-Jaber, as the four pillars. One, fast-tracking the transition to a low CO2 world. Two, fixing climate finance. Three, focusing on people, lives and livelihoods, and four, full inclusivity. So, the first F, fast-tracking the transition. This objective is tied up with the global stocktake at this year's COP, which will assess how quickly countries are reducing emissions. The results so far are not great. Ambition needs to be significantly ratcheted to have any chance of meeting the Paris Agreement goals. Skeptics note that the emphasis is once more on emission reduction rather than cutting fossil fuel extraction at the source. And to this end, a terminological tussle to watch at this COP will be whether the stronger language of phase out or the weaker language of phase down will be used to reference fossil fuels in the final text. In pursuit of Al Jaber's second pillar, fixing climate finance, COP28 hopes to finally deliver on the commitment of richer nations to provide $100 billion to poorer nations the objective being to help these nations shift to lower CO2 economies and meet the Paris Agreement goals. However, it's worth noting that this is a micro-fraction of what's required. Recent UNFCCC analysis estimates poorer nations will require at least $6 trillion by 2030 to meet just half of their existing emission reduction commitments. A crucial dimension of climate finance is also filling and distributing the loss and damage fund agreed on at COP27. This money is reparations for nations already experiencing the brunt of climate impacts. 
Algebra's final two pillars, focusing on people, lives, and livelihoods, and full inclusivity, are welcomed in theory, but campaigners remain skeptical of their veracity. For starters, the UAE is not considered an inclusive place in general. Civil expression is closely policed. This raises many concerns about freedom of protest for civil society organizations and activists attending COP28. Many eyebrows are also raised over Algebra's plan to bring fossil fuel executives to COP28. Algebra is, after all, a fossil fuel executive himself. In fact, he's the chief of the state-owned Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. He has insisted the oil and gas industry must have a place at the table, wanting to devise a plan with the biggest global fossil fuel companies to reduce their emissions in line with the 1.5 degree Paris target. Ambitious indeed, and time will tell the result. But unsurprisingly, campaigners have severe misgivings about this, given the tendency of these fossil fuel reps to cheerlead for the continuation of their own pocket lining rather than tough climate action. So here we are, once again on the verge of graduating from the COP. The final exams are fast approaching and the results will be hugely significant in determining the path for the foreseeable future. But will we make the grade or will we be resitting the year? Only time will tell, but perhaps the more purposeful question is, should we keep faith with the COP? On the one hand, we can say that the process of international consensus building is no easy task. Climate change is a complex, multifaceted, deep-rooted problem to tackle, and that means there's no simple approach. Right now, it's the only high school of its size and scale. And it is the place where global climate agreements have been forged, a place where climate conversations can be sparked between the most diverse and sometimes opposing groups. Sure, some elements aren't perfect, but... Maybe that's just the nature of it. On the other hand, we've had almost 28 COPs so far, but still remain on dangerous temperature rise trajectories. So something clearly is not working. For me, it's hard to not end this episode with a 10 things I hate about COP diatribe. Cynical about COP just becoming a PR stunt, caught up in its own technical jargon, trying to make Excel sheets that sporadically count emissions. There are all the cop-outs we've highlighted, from the inclusivity issues, the problematic power dynamics between countries, the influence of major polluters on the process, all these things need to be resolved to keep hope in the COP process alive. The COP process needs to redirect its focus, to target ending fossil fuel extraction, to address the intersections of climate with racism, with patriarchy, with human rights and with environmental violations head on. If the COP process does not address these structural injustices, then we cannot expect the COP to deliver an outcome which is climate just. We should also zoom out and look at the bigger picture. To remind us that COP is not a one-stop shop. It's a process belonging to an ecosystem of different climate governance approaches at regional, national and local levels. Therefore, we shouldn't expect a single COP to be the defining moment of all time. We should avoid being too tunnel-visioned on some of the nitty-gritty textual decisions and what they mean. They are significant, but they are not where climate action starts or stops. Climate action can start and stop in many different ways and at many different scales. And as a further ray of hope, 
there are spaces and discussion forums, like the People's Summit, that demonstrate intersectional, inclusive and accessible spaces and how they could be scaled. So there you are. Take the great cheat home. See how you balance up the maths. And as the news from COP28 filters in, make your judgment on whether we should stick with the COP process. Either way, it doesn't look like we will be graduating from this place anytime soon. Climate change and this strange high school in an airlock will be happening for some time yet. So, thank you for joining us today. We look forward to being back in your ears soon. Bye for now. Bye. You've been listening to Climate Decoded. This episode was produced by Isabel Bodish, Chantal Kauf-Schultz, Greg Davies-Jones, Lara Davies-Jones, Kim Kenny, and Jens Vendel-Hansen. More info about this episode, a transcript, and resources can be found in the show notes and on our website, climatedecoded.com. Follow us on all the socials on Instagram, LinkedIn, and the place formerly known as Twitter at climate underscore decoded. If you'd like to support the show, please hit that follow button on your podcast pipe of choice and drop us a rating or review. It honestly makes a big difference in enabling other people to find the show. You can also consider subscribing to our Patreon channel. For $5 a month or about the cost of a cup of coffee, you can really help out the podcast. And with that subscription, you'll also get exclusive content and more behind the scenes about our episodes. A final great way to support the show is simply referring it to a friend. It really helps us grow our audience and get more people thinking and talking about and acting on climate change, which is ultimately our goal with Climate Decoded. Talk again soon.